Good morning. Diamond Sutra, last chapter, chapter 32. Furthermore, Subhuti, if a fearless Bodhisattva filled measureless infinite worlds with the seven jewels and gave them as an offering to the Tathagatas, the Arhans, the fully enlightened ones, and a noble son or daughter grasped by the single four-line gata of this teaching on the perfection of wisdom and memorized, discussed, recited, mastered, and explained it in detail to others. The body of merit produced by that noble son or daughter as a result will be immeasurably, infinitely greater. And how should they explain it? by not explaining. Thus, it is called explaining. And then the Buddha ended with uh, this gata. As a lamp, a cataract, a star in space, an illusion, a dewdrop, a bubble, a stream, a cloud, a flash of lightning, view all created things like this. All this was spoken by the Buddha to the joy of the elder Subhuti, the monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen, the bodhisattvas, the divas, humans, asuras, grand drivers, and of the world, of all of whom were greatly pleased with what the Buddha said. So, this, and I'm going to read a little bit from Bill Porter. This sutra began with Subhuti thanking the Buddha for the example of his daily life and asking how he and the other disciples must, might attain such liberation. The Buddha then told Subhuti they must cultivate both wisdom and compassion by liberating all beings while remaining unattached to any perception of a being, any perception of a self, or any perception of liberation. In this final chapter, the Buddha sums up this teaching that combines wisdom and compassion. Not only is it grasped without grasping, it is explained without explaining. Whoever explains this teaching like this does what the Buddha does. This is why the Buddha gets up in the morning and goes to town. This is the way to Buddhahood and the way of Buddhahood. The magic seed that bears the magic fruit, the body we have never, never been without, this is the diamond body. Anything else is just an illusion. Winang. <clears throat> One thought of resolution and merit arrives just as fast. How can apparition bodies and illusory things suffice? When the true Buddha is everywhere, one's work is done. Thus follow a chapter on how apparitions are not real. So, explaining by not explaining, to explain by not explaining. Where are we at with this now that we are wrapping it up? 
there's more to read, there's more I want to go into, but uh, let's take a few minutes to check where we're at and if we need to go back to the beginning and start again. So, uh, and also I want to mention that, uh, uh, let me see something here, that uh, Raisan, uh the last uh, sharing by Raisan was very fitting to this chapter. So if you have not read it yet, I would encourage you to, to read it. Okay. So uh, Raisan, you want to go first since you uh, wrote some things that are very fitting? Yeah, um, good morning, everyone. Um, I guess it, it is for this section, um, um, explaining without explaining, um, it's If I'm doing the explaining, um, then it's, it's about me and it's about um, what, um, you know, if my explanation is being successful and if I'm um, using the right words and there's all of these um, dimensions about um, what it means to do an explanation, um, and the, the sense of explaining that's not explaining seems to be, um, meeting what is, um, what is there at that moment and just expressing it. It's, um, since we're in this environment of focusing and Daibo's workshop and, um, journaling, the writing of diaries, um, there's, um, I think in all of those areas, there's this um, sense of um, doing what's appropriate to the moment mm -hmm. and that it's, um, um, it's not a sense of what I'm doing, it's a sense of what the moment is doing. Um, when I was writing last night, um, um, these sentences come and you begin thinking, well, should I put this sentence down or not? And then the more I can relax and just put down the sentences that come and then worry about it later, um, the more successful the writing seems to be. Uh, that I'm not explaining, it seems that I mean, this sounds so strange. The situation is explaining itself is one way to uh, express that. Um, so I think we had a variety of opportunities to um, um, to practice and get into more of um, a sense of experiencing the moment and um, um, trying to share that and express that. Yeah. Um, without having to explain it. Um, thank you. Thank you. So, so uh, the way to Buddhahood and the way of Buddhahood, 
right? The way to Buddhahood at the same time, you know, so w our expression is already that. Uh, the question is how lost are we to the moment or how much of a gap or a buffer there is between who we are and who we are, right? And, and, uh, and the way to shrink that gap is to not explain, to not do, to not go anywhere, right? By not going anywhere, the gap is gone, right? By letting go of wanting to become someone else or arrive somewhere else, there is nothing but that expression. And um, so one of the things that we do, uh, we, we sit and then we get up and then we go about our day and then we sit again, we get up, we do it again and again and again. And, uh, and this is very important to connect this to connect what we are studying to our practice because we are realizing to whatever extent we are realizing every time we sit and then we're actualizing to whatever extent we can actualize when we move right so we go from sitting to moving and then little by little the the, the line between the dividing line between what we call sitting practice or formal practice and what we call everyday life disappears. That dividing line that is not there to begin with is little by little, uh, it's just gone. So I want to connect that to the first chapter uh, as we are wrapping it up today and uh, read a little bit and a couple of the commentaries uh, to, to uh, strengthen that point. The first chapter, one day before noon, the Bhagavan put on his patch robe and picked up his bowl and entered the capital of Shravasti for offerings. After begging for food in the city and eating his meal of rice, he returned from his daily round in the afternoon, put his robe on, put his robe and bowl away, washed his feet, and sat down on the appointed seat. After crossing his legs, and adjusting his body, he returned his awareness to what was before him. And this is what we are doing, right? So we, we turn the attention to what was before us. And uh, what, what uh, Rezan wrote last night has to do with how do we find that place of equanimity uh, when we are so lost in the, the everyday chaotic, mundane activities that are pulling us in all directions. So easy to get lost in all that. So much to do. By turning the attention to what was before or to what is before right now. What was before is not before. What was before is here. It's just that our attention is completely hijacked or taken up by the everyday activities and all we see is five fingers. We don't see that the five fingers are a hand. We don't recognize that essentially nothing matters as we brought up before, right? And because we don't recognize it, we mind way too much. So the question is how do we, how do we enter daily mundane activities without minding so much? And the answer to that lies in recognizing what was before us, what is there before the mind moves, before we get onto checking boxes off on the to-do list, before we get lost in 
the sea or drowning the sea of yes and no. So, and again, from the first chapter, uh, Jiang Wei Nong says, unfortunate suffering, unfortunate suffering beings, the rich as well as the poor, spend their lives working for food and clothes. No matter what kind of job they do, they all work for food. That's us. They get up in the morning and hurry into the city to work. Working for food is important. But when your work is done, you should return to your own place. The problem with most people is that for the sake of food and clothes, they run around like beggars and eventually forget who they are and no longer return to their own place. When your work is done, don't involve yourself in what doesn't concern you. Thus the Buddha sits down and focuses on the thought before him. Do not concern yourself. And how fitting is that? How much time between our activities, between running around from one thing to another, how much time and energy and thinking we, we waste on those things <clears throat> without returning to our original abode? We can call it that, right? And to return to the original abode is to turn the attention to what was before. And another uh, commentary from uh, Sufa, who said, The Buddha puts on his robe and takes up his bowl to uphold the precepts of morality. He washes his feet and takes his seat to enter meditation. Thus does morality give birth to meditation and meditation to wisdom. Also, by entering the city with his robe and bowl, he goes from the noumenal, and noumenal is objects or events as they appear in it, itself independent of perception by, by the senses, into the phenomenal everyday activities by washing his feet and taking his seat. He goes from the phenomenal into the noumenal. It is only by remaining unattached to the noumenal as well as the phenomenal that undifferentiated prajna can be realized. So going between the noumenal to the phenomenal, back to the noumenal, this is our practice. This is what we're doing. And this is not, it is ancient but alive today. It is ancient because what we're talking about is that which is not born and does not die. Or maybe we should say it's timeless. So it is timeless. We are timeless because we are it are non-dual. So by recognizing our timelessness, we can enter the city. We can enter into our mundane daily activities. We can also enter the way karma manifests in our everyday life without being so attached to it, without being so bogged down by that, without being so worry about everything, right? So that's really the connection that we personally have to make between our sitting practice and our moment-by-moment -moment activities. There's so much going on and there is so much to be caught up by, so much to be caught up by, but at the same time, there is another way. There is another way, not by solving problems by looking at the before a problem is a problem 
or before we call it a problem, before we label it as all these things I got to do, it's never ending, it's too much, I've had enough, I can't take it anymore. All those things, all those, this way of thinking, it comes out of not recognizing that which is before. Where is it? How do we, how do we get to that? And this is what uh, Rezan uh, brought up in, in, in writing last night. It seems as if it's impossible it seems as if it's impossible to get to a to ever get to a point of truly being at peace or truly feeling some sense of equanimity and it, and it seems that way because there is that division between what we call peace and what we call all those things i got to take care of all these things that are pulling me in all directions and likes and dislikes obviously Right, so the preferences are within the, that category. So, um, before we move on, I want to go back to what the Buddha was saying. So, he's comparing the, the seven, seven jewels. So, the offering of the seven jewels, nothing can compare anything that is that we assign meaning and value to, we as people, none of it can compare to nothing. There is nothing greater than nothing, right? Any something is limited by its somethingness, right? By the value that we assign to it. But when we move, and that is, uh, this is what we experience in the phenomenal reality. By moving from the phenomenal to the noumenal, we're able to see that the phenomenal is not fixed and therefore does not have the power we assign to it. We assign the power to it, so we call it something, we call it a problem, we call it difficult, and it becomes that. Or we call it easy, and it becomes that too. But beyond the easy and beyond the difficult, what is it? Does it really have the power to trap us as we feel trapped by it? Right? Those, are the, those are the fundamental questions we, we have to work with. Seng Chao says, the seven jewels are limited. A four-line gata is inexhaustible. The four-line gata is inexhaustible. And Huineng, although the merit from the seven jewels is great, it does not compare with someone who gives birth to the thought of enlightenment and takes a four-line gata of this sutra and explains it to others. Their merit surpasses that of others by a hundred, a thousand, a millionfold. It is beyond compare. It is beyond compare. And Te Ching says, This explains how the apparition body Buddha speaks the absolute Dharma. Subhuti wonders if the Dharma spoken by the apparition body Buddha doesn't attain the state of the Dharma body. Well, let's leave it at that. Does not attain the state of a Dharma body. So, yeah, moving from the noumenal to the phenomenal on a daily basis. Do you experience some sense of freedom? And if you do experience a sense of freedom, what steals it from you? What takes it away? 
when you feel like you lose it. Raise your hand, either the real hand or the imagined hand. Joan, good morning. Hi, everyone. Um, I don't have an answer to that. I have a question to that. Okay. The question is that um, I think I heard you say that we can observe how karma manifests and not be so bogged down by it. Mm -hmm. and um, detach from the problem we assign to it, and that's how we find peace. Okay, so my question is, if I see a variety of suffering around me mm -hmm. in all different types of situations, in different households and families, um, how do I, uh, there may not be an answer to this, but how do I separate compassion for the suffering I see to being bogged down by it and being myself suffering because of that. Right, and thank you. So how do I not add my own suffering to the suffering that's already going on, right? right. Because by adding my own suffering to the pile, the pile grows, right? Right. So, okay, so the suffering, okay. So we go back to the, 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 the first noble truth, right? So, so life is, Life is a dissatisfactory, right? Life does not provide what we want it to give us, right? Right. Me meaning when we are looking at life from the outside, when we are looking at life from a fixed position of me and life, right? So life essentially does not satisfy or life is dukkha or suffering, right? So, so seeing it by seeing it as something that is constantly changing, and by recognizing that, then this is not talking about uh, uh, pain, right? Pain, I mean, everybody experiences pain, right? We're talking about what we add to the, so, so we meet pain, right? We meet suffering, we meet circumstances and conditions. At that meeting point, there is that pain, there is that what we experience, right? There is that, and then a second later, there's what we add to that right? It is moving, it is shifting, yet we create something fixed off it, right? I am the one who is suffering, or, or she or he is the one who is suffering. There is suffering, there, is, there are challenges, but we have to ask who is the one who is suffering, right? So we go through what we go through, well, Simply put, if we take it personally, it becomes personal, right? It becomes about me. It becomes about the other. And the fixedness has to do with that, right? And this is why the Buddha shared that, uh, that verse, that poem that we're going to go into, right? If we understand that it is ephemeral, it is moving, it is constantly changing, then the question of who is that dissolves. To answer, and this is what uh, Rezan was, was pointing at, right? To lose ourselves to the pain is actually to experience less pain because we are merged. Merging, we agree. By agreeing, we're not resisting. There is tremendous amount of pain and suffering that comes from resisting. Right? Yes. From fixating and resisting. 
And when we, we, we make this internal agreement, right, we, we, we choose to yield rather than to get in the way, right? And then what, what do we experience when we yield? And now yielding is yielding to everything and anything. It doesn't preclude us from uh, creating changes, right? So, but it actually frees us to create changes by not arguing with the situation, with ourselves or with others, there is that energy that is all of a sudden freed to be used to create changes, right? We don't think of it this way, but it, it's actually exactly what happens and we have to try it. We have to try to stop arguing mm -hmm. internally. Yeah. And then there is this surge of energy that rises in us and then we can take care of what we need to take care of. So agreeing does not mean becoming a doormat, as we have uh, talked about before, right? Agreeing is the other way around. Agreeing gives us the power we need to go through life. Does that answer it? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else wants to comment on that? Yes, L, and then Daigo. Good morning. Um, Good morning. One of the things that I think um, sometimes I get caught up on when I'm experiencing suffering is uh, I think so, think something along the lines of, um, oh, I'm suffering. And then I think, oh, it's because I'm not connected to the numinal anymore. And I get attached to, um, I get, a, it's like I get too precious with my Zen practice. And so when I'm suffering, I'm like, oh, whatever I'm suffering through is taking me away from my Zen practice. Or if I meditated more, I wouldn't be suffering like this anymore, stuff like that. Um, and I, so something I found touching from the Diamond Sutra was this commentary about moving between the noumenal and the phenomenal and not getting too attached to either um the ordin something the absolute meets the relative like mm -hmm. two arrows meeting in midair mm -hmm. um and there are moments i can think of moments in the past week where i really have not felt connected to what comes before me even despite a deep desire or something or an understanding an intellectual understanding from zen practice and from this talk, I'm thinking about what it would be like to just whether I'm to trust that, that something before me is there, even if I'm not able to access it in this minute or in this hour. Um, and by trusting that it's there, maybe it will help me to grasp a little bit less at trying to get there and kind of prove it to myself that it's there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. So, so uh, yeah, a couple more people. I see your hands, Kako and uh, Sugioku. Uh, so, um, so just want to comment uh, something on what El was saying. So uh, phenomenal and noumenal, right? You know, so we call it phenomenal. We call it noumenal. We call it uh, the one. We call it the many. The emptiness form. But all of it is is just words, right? Provisional words that we are using to try to point at something, right? But so when we, we talk about merging uh, this with that, merging our sitting practice with our moving about a day-to-day -day practice. So we go into Zazen and we practice 
intentionally, intentionally not minding, right? We practice to not mind, right? So thoughts arise, thoughts vanish. The instruction is let it be. Let keep the back door and the front door open, right? So all thoughts are allowed to come and go freely. Do not attach yourself. Do not uh, think the thoughts. Do not create more thoughts out of those thoughts or more emotions out of those emotions. Just do not mind, right? It doesn't mean don't care. It's just for the time being, you choose to not mind, right? So you go into that. After you, you start the, the Zazen period, you maintain that. Now, sometimes we do, we do it, sometimes we can do it as well as other times, which is fine. But still, the intention is to not mind what arises and to not cling to what vanishes, right? And, and then, so since we are working on something, so since we are, we are honing that ability, right? What we want to do is not leave it behind. Right, so when we enter the city, so to speak, as, as in this first chapter, right, entering the city means entering our everyday life, entering our everyday responsibilities, whatever they may be. That's for us entering the city, right? So Zazen ends, you enter whatever it is you need to do, right? Or as Sekida call it, the uh, uh, absolute samadhi and then the everyday moment by moment uh, on the go kind of samadhi right so there is the relative and the absolute in that as well so there is a sense of samadhi a sense of immersion right in the moment but one so when we see it that sense of immersion in the moment is without doing anything right there's no doing in that so, and then when we mobilize that, as we say, we mobilize, we bring it into moment-by-moment -moment life, that samadhi takes different form, different shape, different life, right? And it's on the go. So practice does not end when, when the bell rings, right? When you hear the bell, zazen ends, practice continues. It doesn't look the same, it doesn't feel the same, still it continues, and what we want to do is get away from separating what we call sitting practice and what we call entering the city. There are two different manifestations, that's very true. But the practice continues seamlessly from what we call noumenal to what we call phenomenal back to the noumenal. This is one of the reasons why sitting every day is the most fundamental aspect of Zen practice. Without sitting every day, it is there, but not accessible. It's there. It's not that we're creating it. It's just not accessible. And then all there is, is the provisional moment-by-moment -moment reality. Okay, thank you. Uh, Kakuo. Um, I don't know if Raison was first, but that doesn't matter. Okay, um, so I was thinking about, you asked what uh, is it that takes us away from, is why don't we just, you know, just be here now. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, I had a conversation with a friend of mine about, um, you know, how life has changed and is changing with Zoom and, and, and with the pandemic, and now we're coming back to in real life, IRL is now the expression. So I think there's something going on with a lot of people now where we have this constant stream of information and of connection. It's like there's reality and there's illusion. And now there's this other thing, this like 
Zoom. Am I am I sitting here with you? I'm, you know, I, I, in person right now or not? And and then you know I can get. I mean, I'm on my computer, so I turned off the email little banner. But if I get a text from a friend, it it pops up. I probably should turn it off, but it like pops up. And anyway, so so I and probably a lot of people are experiencing this. We now have this world of stimuli and and you know if you have a job that involves a lot of email and texting you can 24/7 you know and so so how can we step back and see the illusion of it when it's just confusing anyway <laughs> there's so much information in emails and texts and zoom calls and you know all of that stuff Yes, there's a lot of that, and uh, right, and that that that's triggering something, right? So we have more distractions, mm. right? We have more distractions. They're all on the same plane, whether it's you know we see each other or we see each other like that, right? It's on the same plane, and uh, it's all triggering us, right? So yeah. So are you asking if it's more difficult these days than during the time of the Buddha? Yeah, I'm asking how we can see through the illusion, how we can see through what's what's uh, relative and absolute. When now we have this in between, what is a Zoom call? Is that relative? Is that absolute? What is it? <laughs> you call it in between, and you create an in between, wow. and you can create an in between between that too. So wow. you can infinitely go into that, or you. And so I, let's hold off on that. I want to connect this to the verse, to the gata, and then we're gonna connect. Uh, what the Buddha brought up and what you are asking about. Okay? okay. So, so hold off on that. Uh, Reza or Sugyoko, I'm not sure. You have one hand. You're sharing a hand. Sugyoko. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd like to go back to the little conversation between you and Joan um, about uh, that started with how do I not add my suffering to the suffering of someone else and keep that sense of compassion. And um, so, and also to what you said about pain at the meeting point. Mm -hmm. So I've become aware of that pain at the meeting point. And uh, I think for me, I'm seeing like, before experiencing the pain, there's an experience of fear a fear of experiencing the pain. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, uh, if I can keep going, well, actually, when I see that, I can kind of keep going and contact the pain. And the pain is much simpler mm -hmm. than the problem well, I'm a big worrier, as people probably know. So um, <laughs> the pain is much simpler than the worry. Mm -hmm. The pain is much simpler than what I'm trying to do for the other person. And it's just there, and it's mm -hmm. just pain. Mm -hmm. And um, and then it seems to me that there's also a, some fear of staying with the pain, even though experiencing the pain, it is so much simpler. Uh, and um, that the mind wants to move away and can only stay there for 
a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to say. Thank you. So, yes, yeah, so, so there is just the pain, right? The fear, the fear is obviously a fear of annihilation. It will, it will take me down. It will break me apart, right? It'll tear me apart. And, and well, then what if there is nothing there that can be taken apart? Because it's already taken apart. Right? What about that? Uh, what about seeing that there is essentially nothing? I'm creating, well, or my mind is creating something that that will threaten because I I'm holding on to what I my mind has created as me. So since I'm holding on to that, that is a threat, and it is a threat to that because it is showing essentially that there is nothing there. There is a saying that uh, goes like, in the seeing, there is merely seeing, and in the hearing, there is merely hearing. That could extend to, in the pain, there is only pain, as you were saying, right? In the pain, there is only pain. What's not there is the one who is experiencing that, because the one who is experiencing and the experience are non-dual. Um, in the same way that Reza and I were talking Friday about running, right? Uh, so in running, can you separate the runner from running? The runner and running are not dual. There's no running without a runner, and there's no runner without running. Right? So it it it, it is a total experience that merges subject and object, that merges that that sense of duality, essentially. Right? By by maintaining a layer outside of that, there is something that is threatened. But by what we call losing ourselves to the moment, losing ourselves to the experience, that layer is dropped. Well, the layer is, is, is made up. But the layer, the sense of separation is dropped, sense of a gap is dropped, and all there is is that. And, and what's interesting about that is that the, the pain level, something changes. The quality of, of the experience changes. Mm-hmm. Because there's no layer, there's no gap, there's no resistance. Resistance is very painful. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that from Aikido. We learn it in a the, in the hard way that re- to resist is to hurt further. To not resist is to find life, to find flow. Right? It, it's, that, it's that initial inner agreement. Mm-hmm. But it's moment by moment inner agreement that it's not a one-time thing that we will... Well, I've agreed, so I'm good to go for from this point on. We have to agree and agree and agree and agree and agree until at some point we no longer make that decision to agree. It becomes a natural way of being, more or less. But we do need to keep that agreeing, the sense of agreeing in, in, inside. We have to keep it alive. Right? Yeah. Practice... Uh, I'm trying to practice this. As a practice, it feels like um, uh, trying to when the, when the, when the just pain manifests, it feels like um, just being with that in bits. So. It isn't sustainable over a long period of time, but but I can be grateful 
that it appears and I can be with it for a bit. And then just my idea of my practice is just to, as best they can, keep allowing the bits mm -hmm. and um, have a little faith that the bits could grow, <laughs> get a little longer uh, and come more easily. Right. That's, that's all we're asking of ourselves to, pra to do, to practice. Right? That, that sense of the great determination, right? The great determination is exactly that. We just keep going. We don't measure it. Right? We don't measure it with anything. That's why there are no standards. Right? We chant no standards. Well, there's no need to measure to the best of your ability right now. Right. So that's why it's the way of Buddhahood and the way to Buddhahood at the same time. Right? You're Buddha, but you don't fully feel like that, right? Or, or don't fully experience it. But that does not make you not eat. It's just the experience of not feeling it. Not always feeling it, as you say. Right? Thank you. Uh, I think Jifu uh, raised the hand. Morning. Morning. Um, I have the tremendous opportunity to deal with a lot of suffering in the, in the work that I do. Um, and I enter the room of a patient who is dying and I ease their physical suffering. Um, and sometimes there's a, an aspect of that that's an existential suffering um, that I, my presence can make a difference with. And then I deal with the suffering of the family members and the friends who are in the room um, dealing with the suffering of the anticipatory loss of that, that loved one and also the suffering of facing their own uh, fatality, right? Their mortality. And um, then I walk out of the room and people are buzzing around and we're getting medicine and moving between these two spaces can be um, challenging and exhausting. I think what works for me is remembering that we're all going through these separate sufferings and the same sufferings at the same time. So we're all facing our mortality and there's no cause or end to that mortality, but reality is that we die. And so there's this beautiful um, symmetry between running around in our world where we're not looking at that and then going into the room and experiencing that and facing that with others. Um, so it's both assigning that suffering to others mm -hmm. as their suffering to experience and also acknowledging that there's an impact on you, um, but that, that's, that there's not a problem with that. There's no problem here. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that this is the reality of our lives. Thank you. Thank you. Th thank you for sharing that. that that's actually very important, right? So, so life and death in this case uh, um, exist side by side, right? It's not this and that. It's this as that, right? So one and the other is just one foot and then the other foot, right? And then the, the and it's, as you say, it's not a problem. Well, it becomes a problem when we take it personal, when we think this is wrong, right? 
To die, there's nothing wrong with dying. But we make it that, right? We assign wrongness to that, or we label it as wrong, or should not be, or, or and we take it personally, right? But if we can, if we can find in us some way to accept that, then it changes the quality of life. It changes the quality of our experiences. It also opens up uh, a, a great deal of compassion, natural compassion. And in this case, compassion and wisdom are non-dual, as, as, as we, we know, we've heard many times. And the wisdom has to do with, with understanding reality as it is. Understanding reality as it is, it is easier and more natural to be compassionate. Not understanding reality as it is, we become very stingy or very intermittent with our compassion, whether it's towards ourselves or others. But all there is, all there's left is just compassion. And that's what you experience and express at work. So, thank you. Uh, Jürgen, did you raise a hand? No, okay. Did anybody else raise a hand? Okay. So I want to go uh, into the, that uh, gatha, uh, read a couple of things about it, and then uh, we can discuss it. As a lamp, a cataract, a star in space, an illusion, a dewdrop, a bubble, a stream, a cloud, a flash of lightning. View all created things like this. And Bill Porter commented, This gatha is simply an offering giving, given to us by the Buddha, the Buddha's way of saying goodbye, until we meet again. Here is something for your empty bowl. Regard all things, all beings, this teaching, this sutra, this body of merit, this realization, regard them all as unreal. Winang, speaking dharmas with skillful and expedient means, considering people's faculties and capacities and using whatever works, this is what is called explaining to others. Also, those who listen to dharmas exhibit many kinds of appearances. One must not discriminate, but simply maintain an utterly empty mind that accords with the truth. This is being in alignment. As to what accords with the truth and doesn't waver from it, no thought of attaining, no thought of gain or loss, no thought of the future, no thought of creating or destroying. Dreams are our false bodies. Illusions are our false thoughts. Bubbles are our afflictions. Shadows are our karmic obstructions. And um, Musong translated it slightly differently than that, or more loosely, and, and I want to read that as well, this poem. He says, You should view all of these, all of the fleeting worlds as a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And then he said, What the Buddha saw through his teachings was to establish a healthy relationship between the self and this fleeting, transitory world. This is the essence of the Diamond Sutra. 
how to view the world around us so that we are not taken in by the mere appearances of things and hence not caught in the suffering that samsara brings. Like all Buddhist scriptures, it teaches a way of being in the world without being of it. As Rezan mentioned, right? To be in the world without being of it. And this is where the noumenal and the phenomenal merge, right? There is a similar poem that the Buddha also shared another time. Life is a journey, death is a return to earth. The universe is like an inn. The passing years are like dust. Regard this phantom world as a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. So, yeah. So the essence of, as, as Musong was saying, the essence of this sutra is there, right? How to, to create a healthy relationship between the noumenal and the phenomenal, we can say, between what is form and what is empty, right? How to create a healthy relationship while we are moving about this uh, existence? How to create a more light-hearted, less personal way of being in the world? And light-hearted as opposed to the heaviness we bring to the world. So, anyone... Daiba, good morning. You're quiet today. Okay. Um, so, um, from uh, an earlier chapter. Uh, Thus, in teaching the Dharma, there was something the Buddha could teach. There was nothing the Buddha could teach. All he did was protect beings from misconceptions by teaching them not to give birth to views and get rid of their attachments. Students should realize that this is all he did. So when we, when we talk about, um, you know, going back to what Joan was, the question that Joan posed before, which was so powerful, um, you know, it's, it's these views that arise in our lives that create that, that tension at the meeting point of, uh, of our direct experience. And, you know, one of the things we talked about in the workshop and in the Ango last time was acceptance, right? And acceptance doesn't mean, as Roshi said before, you know, kind of being a doormat and taking it and let life, you know, kind of roll over you. Right. It just it means at that meeting point, at that direct experience moment, um, accepting that this is the way that life is. It's perfect and complete just as it is. So when you're at that moment, you have the opportunity to become the world that you want the world to be, to become the change that you want to see in the world is what we talked about the last time. So. You know, in, in the gata that the Buddha, you know, quotes in this last chapter, you know, he, 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 he encourages us to see the phenomenal world as an illusion 
and, and something that's always changing that we can't grasp onto it. And once at the meeting point of direct experience, if we take a fixed approach to that situation, um, we become burdened and we become locked in. So, you know, when we accept the world as being perfect and complete as it is, we can move forward freely um, and, and enter into the direct experience of our lives without the baggage of the preconceived notions that we have about how our life should be rather than how it is. So, you know, to me, the gata is very encouraging because, you know, if we can see all of the things in our lives as not fixed and transient and impermanent and always changing, it gives us the freedom to use everything all the time, you know, without being bogged down by what we think things should be, but rather use things as they truly are. Mm -hmm. Um, and that to me is the beauty of the Diamond Sutra. It, it's just time after time, the Buddha tells us, don't get locked in, just don't get locked in and just flow. Um, and that's what the Gata means to me. Thank you. Thank you. So, so really not making anything out of anything, right? You know, not making anything out of anything. When we don't make something out of whatever it is, then Again, it is a lot easier to work with it, to flow with it. Liking it or not liking it, let's put that aside for the time being. Again, the thing itself, the thing itself does not come with what we assign to it. It feels like that, absolutely. But it doesn't come with the meaning that we give it. Nothing has that meaning that we give it. We give it a meaning and then what happens, we interact, we no longer interact with what's going on, we interact with what we think about what's going on. Right, we interact with the meaning we just gave it. Yes, right, and that becomes fixed in our minds and then there's no longer seeing what's happening. There's no longer interacting with life. We're half alive, half not alive because we are vested in something. And what we're vested in is in the meaning. Even calling suffering, suffering sometimes can do that. Right? It is, you, we can be with somebody who's going through uh, challenges and we can even cry with that person and give them a big hug and feel it and feel the pain. Feel the pain. Experience the pain. Even with that, there's no need to assign any extra meaning to it. It's already full of meaning as is, as an experience. Why add another layer to it? It doesn't need it. We don't need it. We can experience the pain and then move and flow through that rather than create something stagnant and fixed in our mind that we, we feel like we have to carry around even after that interaction passed. It stays in our mind as something fixed, as an idea as a perception that we carry with us to the next interaction and then the next and the next and the next and then it gets piled up. Here's my opinion. Here's what I think. Here's what I don't think. And that's what we have to loosen up. That, that rigidity of perceptions as we talked about the last chapter. Anyone else?
Yes, Christine, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, even as I'm, I'm wanting to share, I keep thinking like, you know, I want to share and myself <laughs> to share, but, um, you know, I, I'm trying to connect kind of to emotions I'm having or thoughts I'm having from the beginning when Raison was talking about uh, writing, um, writing with words and, you know, kind of judging whether or not to use one or the other. And, um, and I felt so much in my, you know, in my history that I've done so much of, you know, self judgment of whether to say this or that, or how will it be perceived when this is said or written. Um, and I, you know, kind of putting together that it's so much about the standard I've set for myself or the judgment I have on self. And then there's so much I, in that and trying to drop away self from that. And um, another thing that I've, um, you know, wanted to connect with for this, you know, today's talk is the idea of uh, like bound, boundlessness for frustration or patience, which I, which is sticky for me and which I work with and how kind of the other side of that is compassion. Um, so when, you know, I think about my patience and how I'm trying to say, well, I don't have patience for that anymore, that I've reached my patience level. Well, there really is no boundary for that. And that the kind of space in between that and fury is really just the place to be and to accept, um, you know, the same with suffering or pain and the other side of that of compassion kind of to exist mm -hmm. in that middle space. Um, mm -hmm. you know, acceptance. And even this morning when I'm trying to teach my daughter to accept that we're not having chocolate chip pancakes <laughs> and uh, to agree <laughs> with that. Um, so I'm just trying to connect that of uh, dropping away self from judgments and existing in the, the space between where we've called our, you know, where we've called boundaries mm -hmm. to. Thank you. Thank you. So experiencing the I, experiencing me and uh, letting go of, or wanting to let go of that, you essentially, we don't have to reject anything. We're not cutting anything out of anything. We are accepting by accepting, right? By, as, as uh, it was mentioned before, we, we did that, we spent an anger on acceptance. By accepting, we are merged. And in merging, what is being let go of, right? What is it that we are letting go of? We are merged. We are experiencing what's, what's happening at that moment. And there's no thought wasted over, wasted on, I have to let go of me because I'm not letting go of anything at that time. There is not, nothing to be let go of because there is that sense of merging. Right, it's it's that. So we should not work too hard about understanding what emptiness is, or understanding what form is, and what is it that I let go of, or be careful with uh, using the word self or your word I. Right. What matters is that we see that essentially it is nothing like a bubble, or a phantom, a flickering lamp, a dream. There's nothing there to begin with. 
as long as we don't get caught up in what we assign to who I think I am, to that existence. Thank you. Daikyo. Morning. Hey, good morning. Um, I want to, to reflect a little bit on, on something I heard uh, from Seiyoku um, about fear. And, uh, and she mentioned that also in, the, in our last Sunday meeting about um, how fears made uh, race and change some attitudes. You know, when, when she overcome, he overcome the fear of, of interacting with somebody, you know, he changed some attitudes. And, and I, was, uh, I always found that fear, fear is a great indicator of our detachments. Um, every time we fear something, we, we, we can see that we are creating a self that is the one that is um, dreading some sort of future, perceived future. And, uh, and that is again, I mean, it's like a loss. Usually it's a loss of something, a loss of uh, something that we gain, a potential loss of something that we want, um, uh, you know, pain or whatever it is. And, and, and the fear is, is a great indicator of that separation. Every time we feel fear, we need to look at how we separate, we're separating something there and we, we are creating the self. And, uh, and, um, and in that, what, what I was thinking about is what is the actual opposite of, I mean, what is the fearless? And I think the fearless has to do with trust. Um, at least, uh, you know, when, when I, when I enter a situation that I don't know what the situation is, or I don't know what the outcome will be. <clears throat> and I don't know if I'm up to the task, which is kind of related to what Juan was asking. It's like, how do I manage the compassion, uh, you know, on, on a situation? I mean, I, I, I mean, it's a fear of I'm not enough. How can I help? How can I do this? You know, and, and that fear comes with, um, I, I don't know, a relation with the trust of, of I mean, like remembering that we are complete as we express ourselves. We are supposed to be expressing just by immersion and, and the trust is is the most um connected word to the immersion i mean like every time you trust that you are enough then then you come into a situation and you merge you just act and kind of act out of your true nature because you're trusting that true nature to show you how to act instead of creating a kind of an idea of how you should be acting mm -hmm. which is kind of derailing typically you know, like, well, I don't have enough of, of this in what I'm saying today or whatever, you know, like, and, and, and that self-consciousness that happened many, many times, that is a self-consciousness on the imagined self, not really connected to the true self. Um, so, I mean, I wanted to reflect on that because, I mean, I found that um, that fear was a topic that was raised a couple of times, you know, this meeting and the previous one. And, and I do believe fear is, is a great indicator on, on real everyday things mm -hmm. every time we fear something it's like okay so where is me in this fear i mean what, what why i'm creating something that mm -hmm. fears so much mm -hmm. and 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 then and then looking at that you know kind of you may find the trust you need for entering the topic and just you know take it with the acceptance of okay whatever the outcome will be this is what i can offer to this mm -hmm. um so without pasting into it so 
that's what I was thinking during these conversations. Thank you. Thank you. So, so you mentioned fearlessness, and you know, fearlessness has to include fear, um, which means we have to accept, not reject the fact that there is that we are experiencing fear. It has to be included, right? Because there, again, there's nothing to to cut off. There's nothing to reject. There's nothing to negate or suppress. There is fear, and we are experiencing fear, and it is a part of our experience. It's it's of the totality of the experience. Right? So and the question is, how do we accept it and move, move from it, right? And to experience fear, that by itself is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as we don't create something from that, as long as we don't uh, attach ourselves to that, it is an experience. And the experience is moving and changing, like everything else. It's moving, it's changing, right? So the fear is, is as you say, could be a great indicator something to learn from right and um and sometimes well often the fear actually has to do with not uh feeling that we have what it takes to deal with the situation but how but how is this possible i mean we are born as human beings obviously and we think we don't have what a human being needs in order to go through life as a human being how is this possible what kind of creature ponders, do I have what it takes to, uh, to live a life of a bird, for example, or a life of a monkey or a life of a squirrel? Well, of course, they are born already having what they need to go through a life of that, uh, that creature, right? That being. We are born equipped with everything we need to live as a human being. Externally, internally, physically, emotionally, psychologically, we are born like that. Now, of course, you know, we're also born with karma. So there is that. But again, when we turn the attention to what was before, we actually can get in touch with that and then learn to trust it and learn to be led by that more so than by, than by our perceptions of reality. Right? And that's how we develop that trust. But fear needs to be included in that process, meaning accepting fear has to be included mm -hmm. rather than think, well, you know, I failed or I'm failing because I'm experiencing fear. Other people are more brave than I am. That's all extra. That's un unnecessary. I mean, I think, I think that that's why, you know, brave for me, being brave is not opposite of, of the fear. Yeah. It's more about trust than than bravery. You know, yeah. it's about it's it's uh, it's. I mean, overcoming the fear, not not rejecting it, but overcoming it has to do with the trust more yes. than to be kind of this idea of bravery. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. And right. That's and, what I wanted yeah. to kind of point out, and that's why I use trust instead of uh, brave against the fear. You know, um, I yes. think they are not. It's funny because I mean, brave. I think it's a, it's a made up thing. The fear is more real than the bravery. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? The fear you yes. can feel. Yes. The bravery is some sort of, I don't know, you know, I don't know if we feel really brave. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, the, 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 what we talk about uh, in terms of, well, bravery or, or having the, finding that, that in us is actually opening up to rather than closing off. To open to life, to open fully to life with everything that comes with it. 
right? That, that's the fearlessness of the Bodhisattva. To open up to suffering. Well, we chant that, right? Kanzeon, right? The one who hears the, the cries of the world. To bear witness. To find the courage to bear witness by remaining open, right? Even when, when people take advantage of our openness. Not to be jaded, not to become jaded after people take advantage of our openness, right? To, to, to do it with our eyes open, but to remain open, to remain uh, uh, with the practice, to, to stay with the practice. So that's the fearlessness that we're talking about. L. Um, oh, I was unmuted. Okay, great. Um, just uh, as a side note, I think that I'm appreciating this conversation about fear, fear, and um, I think the that sentiment, the fear is more real than bravery. I'm not sure if bravery is real. Is also possibly. Uh, um, Kind of cutting observation of in my experience american masculinity so just appreciating that in my own way and having fun with it um i originally i initially raised my hand because of uh the discussion of compassion that christine was having with you and with us and i i recognize in myself that um sometimes uh, sometimes compassion looks, I've noticed lately that sometimes compassion actually looks like measured disinterest. And I think um, sometimes when I think about being compassionate, I localize myself a lot in the compassion. I am compassionate. I am really feeling with this person. I'm really caring. I'm noticing what's going on. I'm appreciating. And I think sometimes the compassion that we're talking about is a little bit more disinterested than um, I initially think it is. So sometimes the compassion looks like just let letting another person be what they're being or go through what they're being and even just accepting that it doesn't have that much to do with you. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not neglecting and it's not withholding. It's just not getting... Um, not adding yourself to it, which we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So the compassion this is speaking of is not the compassion we think of. It's, it's not what we think of. It's actually, well, we go along with the sutra, not being compassionate is being compassionate. Right? By not, uh, go, by not trying to fit our definition of compassion. Right? Um, it is just a natural way of being. We often say it's like scratching the nose. It's a natural um, way of acting. There's no thought between... Uh, so when, when the nose is itchy, you just do that, not in Zazen, but you pick up your hand and you scratch it, and it's a natural... There's no thought that, that separates between the hand and the nose, or the action of scratching. That's the compassion this is referring to. It's just a natural way of being. In that, there is no gap. There's no gap, there's no you. Or that, okay, maybe we should say something. That is you. That is the real, original you. The non-you is you. 
So we talked about it last chapter. It is actually not, the negation is not the last stop, right? It, the negation leads to affirmation. There's nothing to get rid of. There is a recognition of who we really are. And how do we arrive at that? By not getting caught up in who we think we are. Right? By I not getting caught up in perception. Yeah. Oh. Go ahead. Um, if, if simply scratching the nose is the real you, then why don't we do that during Zazen? Because in Zazen, we don't scratch the nose. Okay. Or any other body part. <laughs> Uh, because in Zazen, we go back to there is nothing there. And also, I mean, there are many reasons why. We are cultivating something, right? We are working to understand something. The reference here is, is in, in the naturalness, right, of being. So that's where the, the analogy is at. Okay, we are going to wrap it up. Anybody wants to share last words? Yes, Sado. And uh, Raison, go ahead. Uh, I, I was thinking to myself about the Diamond Sutra and the Zen training that uh, my whole life, but there's always been a saying, right, that uh, life keeps teaching you the same lessons until you learn from them. And uh, I used to always think to myself that what that expense saying was saying to me was that I have to... I'm going to keep having the same problems or keep running into the same problems until I've built up previous uh, experiences enough to to move past it, right? To work through that problem. And now I'm starting to think that what the Buddha is saying is that we should understand that each experience is a new experience and that we shouldn't use our previous attachments to limit that experience. And that, you know, that, that life is presenting for us and that we should come at each experience as if it's the first time. Right. So, right. yeah, it's always teaching. You're saying it's teaching the same thing, but in a new, fresh way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's kind of in my mind. I mean, I was a little distracted because it was, that's what I was thinking while this was going on that, you know, and uh, it was I don't know. I don't know if that's really what he's teaching, but for me, that's how I feel. That's how I feel. That's what I feel he was teaching, at least right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, life is teaching. Everything is teaching, and uh, fresh, new, as yeah. if the first for the first time. Yeah, yes. and I used to think that the attachment to a previous experience was what life was teaching you—that you should be attached, right? Mm -hmm. And it'll help you solve the problems going forward using past experiences. But now I'm thinking that we should shed the attachment to to come at each experience as if it's the first time, right? Yes, and the past experiences are embodied. Once they are embodied, you can let it go. You don't have to hold on to it. You know, take your experience with carpentry, right? And doing, you don't have to think about it because you, the hand knows. Right? Yeah. Your body knows, and when the body knows, the idea of it is let go of. There's no need to carry it around. So that's the yeah. process of embodiment, right? Eventually, you let it go. Right, yeah. You know, yeah that's a very concise way of putting it, yeah.
Thank you. Okay, okay. Rezan, last word. Unmute. Okay. okay. Um, I think life doesn't get any more real or more complicated than around issues of caring and compassion. Um, I just think this is so um, central to our practice. And um, also the, the sense of um, serenity and tranquility, we get, I think we sometimes get an idea that there's no pain or suffering in that area. And that um, I, I think that's not the case. I think serenity and tranquility are not, um, again, a mindless acceptance of pain and suffering, but that um, if we are living in the realm of phenomena and experience and relativity, pain and suffering is part of that world. What Elle was saying about to be compassionate is sometimes to honor somebody's pain and suffering and not always trying to erase it and get rid of it. Mm -hmm. um, um, one of the this is the last thing. One of the images that um, struck me during our conversation this morning is um, that what, what the moment brings to us is an absolute responsibility to respond to the moment. Mm -hmm. And so caring and compassion, I think the more honest and authentic we are in the moment, those are things that are there. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not ultimately even choices, I think, for us that uh, to respond when those are the things that are called for is to be fully present in the moment, to be wholehearted. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, um, we're responding to a situation that we're not really responsible for. You know, somehow um, this situation is the way that it is. We probably played some role in it, but we certainly are but a tiny thread in the enormous uh, weaving of karma. Um, and so um, the more we are in that, the more um, the big as self, the nasty self is present, it can be very, very confusing to be in a situation that you absolutely have to respond to and yet you're not really responsible for it. Yeah. Um, being caught between those things can be very um, disorienting, I find. Um, so that the, the more the big as can shrink uh, and the question of well, who's really responsible for this and why is it happening and um, that that can become um, less important than the immediate response to the, um, the situation, I think is helpful, at least for me. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so with this, we wrap it up and it's been a quite a long and interesting journey. Uh, I got a lot from it. Uh, I hope you did too. And uh, I would suggest uh, to once in a while go back and refer to some of the teachings, refer to some of the, uh, the commentaries, which are phenomenal. And uh, it will continue. Okay, so thank you all.